It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. This one is gone. It hits the foul pole. Howie Kendrick has done it again. And here it comes. Swag and a miss. Swag and a miss. And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books. Hi, everyone. I'm Charlie Sloves. And I'm Dave Jagler. And welcome to Curly W Live from the Booth. Every episode, we talk about some of the greatest games and moments in Nationals history. We'll also answer some of your questions if you send them to us at nationalsradio at nationals.com or reach out to us with a direct message at, at NatsRadio on Twitter and we'll answer your questions at the end of every episode. Curly W Live from the Booth is presented by GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to save on car insurance and homeowner's insurance. Visit GEICO.com and see how much you can save. GEICO proud partner of the Washington Nationals. This is episode five of Curly W Live from the booth, if you've been following along. And recently, we had the chance to hold a question and answer Zoom call with some of our national season plan holders. There were some great questions, and we wanted to share some of our favorites with you. Well, Ryan, let's open it up for, for questions. They can actually see us work. Normally, we just they just hear us, but they can, <laughs> they're, they're looking into our booth. Here we peek, are. Peek into the booth. Absolutely. The first question is for Charlie. It's from Suzanne Masri. She wants to know, were you surprised that A.J. Hinch pulled Zach Greinke when he did? And was that the turning point in your mind in Game 7? No doubt, because uh, the Nationals were having a hard time solving him. I don't know how many balls, six or seven. It seemed like every, every out that wasn't in the air was a ground ball back to Greinke. One, one gold glove after gold glove in his career. That's the last place you wanted to hit the ball was back to Granke. And so they were having a real tough time offensively. Uh, it's just the feeling of the way the games are managed today by a lot of the managers that, you know, Granke maybe in similar fashion to, to Anibal Sanchez with the Nationals compared to Verlander, uh, compared to the other pitchers on a shorter leash as far as pitch count. But I thought he was so good at that point. You know, if from Houston's standpoint, Dave, you, you're not saving anything. He wasn't going to pitch again. And, you know, I didn't feel like that, you know, he gives up a solo home, home run to Rendon and then a walk, he's out of the game. For me, everything changed right there. Yeah, I always have a feeling watching a game, uh, when, when a starting pitcher is that dominant as he was, even if they bring in a, a quote-unquote more dominant pitcher out of the bullpen, it's almost like you'd rather face the reliever because you never know if that reliever is going to have his A game that day. Clearly, Granke had his A-plus game that day. So getting him out of the game was huge. The fact that they didn't go to Garrett Cole was huge. And as far as the turning point, obviously that was a big turning point. But there were several big turning points early in that game because, you know, Max Scherzer walked a tightrope in almost every inning that he pitched, whether it was, you know, their men on base, he gave up one run in the first inning. Soto makes the, the tumbling catch on the sinking line drive in the second inning. He was in trouble in the third inning. He was in trouble in the fourth inning. It just seemed like every inning the Astros were one hit away from busting that game open. But Max never let them do that. He hung in there. I think my nerves, we were talking about this earlier before the game or late in the game. I thought my, I was most nervous in the third and fourth inning 
when we switch and you were doing the play-by-play and Max is on the ropes in those innings. And you're just kind of like, you're like the fans. Your, your hands are sweating. You're like, I felt like, yeah, you're one mistake away from this being a, you know, a five or six nothing game and a big hill to climb out of, even though the Nats had been so good at coming from behind. So, you know, once they got through that point and then uh, when Greinke was out of the game, I felt like all bets are off. The momentum certainly changed. And I thought it was a big help in that he was taken out of the game, no matter, like you say, no matter who was coming on a relief, you just never know from, from one game, one appearance to the next. There's always a little bit of a roll of the dice when you take that starting pitcher out, especially one that was going so well and still had a lead. Excellent. The next question is for both of you guys, uh, from Michael Goddard. Who was your favorite player to watch during the entire Nationals championship run and why? Well, uh, it's hard to argue. Uh, the dominance of Steven Strasburg, whether it was the three innings in relief in the wild card game and then his terrific performances as a starting pitcher the rest of the postseason. Uh, there were certainly some great performances, but maybe, you know, he was most dominant of anyone in the way he performed on the mound. But then, Dave, I know you're going to talk about Howie Kendrick and the, the two big home runs uh, that you'll never forget calling in Los Angeles. And then, of course, in Houston in Game 7. Uh, big hits for Juan Soto, long home runs. Uh, there were so many memorable performances, but maybe maybe at the top of the list for me was the way Steven Strasburg pitched. Yeah, you, you kind of stole my thunder there on Kendrick. I'll point out one guy who didn't even join the team until the trade deadline for Daniel Hudson to be uh, the, the storybook season that he had. When you look at, here's a guy who who basically looked like his career was over when he had the multiple Tommy John surgeries, and then he's released by the Angels in spring training in 2019, a team that's not exactly loaded with pitching. He hooks on with the Blue Jays, a team in rebuilding mode, and he's, you know, he has a good, you know, good first three, four months of the season, gets traded to the Nationals, and he's expected to be you know, kind of a come in and get get out of trouble guy. He had great inherited runners stats in the American League. Well, all of a sudden, Doolittle you know, kind of runs out of steam and, and gets hurt in August, and, and Hudson is thrust into the closer's role. And he's one who has never embraced the closer's role. And then just by circumstance, he does well and, and basically becomes the closer, although Doolittle did get some save chances in the postseason. Hudson, in essence, became the closer. And outside of the L.A. series, he was on the mound to finish the other three clinchers and, and again, did just an amazing job. And then you, you talk about what happened in, in game one of the NLCS when he, when he obviously made the decision to, to go home and wasn't even with the team. And uh, it was truly a storybook uh, season for him and for Hudson to be able to be just a, one of the handful of pitchers. And they did a great article uh, in The Athletic about the, the last 10 pitchers who have recorded the last out in a World Series. And for Hudson to be on that list and tell his story, it was quite a journey to get to that point from where it was when he was released in spring training. Really, uh, you know, it is amazing. I talked to him about it a while at spring training. I did a Q&A with fans with him during spring training. And literally still in spring training, I think he's still walking on air. Like, it's hard to believe that he got that opportunity. And, you know, when the Nationals made moves at the trade deadline and picked up three relievers, you never knew it was going to come to that. But certainly when Sean Doolittle struggled in August against the Brewers and, you know, gave up the home runs in that game where he had given up home run to a left-hander and who knows, left-hand hitter and who knows how long and gives up two in one inning uh, and then ends up on the injured list the next day, you didn't know if Sean was going to regain his form, if he was out of gas, if, it was, if his knee was going to help him recover. 
Where would they have been without Daniel Hudson, not only in the postseason, but over the, the final month plus of the season? He was huge. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy he's back for, for 2020 and, and got a multi-year deal. So great guy in the clubhouse and great that he's going to be a part of it going forward. You know, one other thing, Stan Kasten did a Q&A for, for Dodgers fans after the season, and they were talking about, someone asked about moves that they had not made. And he goes, well, how come nobody's asked us why we didn't keep Daniel Hudson? Well, yeah, well, everyone, everyone was critical of them last year for not signing Bryce Harper. Right. Said, well, you should have been critical of us for not re-signing Daniel Hudson. He was a guy they had. Yep. It was a pretty funny line from Stan. The next question is from Jeff Bernstein. In game five against the Dodgers, when Howie Kendrick hit what turned out to be his go-ahead grand slam, did you think it was a home run off the bat? Or like me, did you think, great, at least a sacrifice bringing in a run to take the lead? And surprise, it's gone. You know, that I had a chance to, to call that off the bat. I gave it the big buildup because at worst, it was going to be a sacrifice fly and the go-ahead run. So that was one you could commit to fairly early. The ball had not been carrying much of the night there at Dodger Stadium. Even a ball hit the previous inning by Will Smith of the Dodgers. He thought he did a bat flip, thought he had the walk-off home run. The ball didn't carry. Rendon had hit a ball earlier in the, in the game to that part of the ballpark that didn't carry. So I wasn't sure. I wouldn't have bet my life that it was going to go out. But you knew, at worst, the Nationals were going to be in front with a chance to win the series. So that's why I kind of gave it the big buildup off the crack of the bat. And then as soon as I saw Bellinger tracking the ball, just our angle, the broadcast booth at Dodger Stadium, it was pretty evident uh, fairly early in the, in the arc of the ball that it was going to go. And so just you know, watching Bellinger kind of helplessly drift back, you could tell from his body language he didn't think he had a chance. And so it uh, – it turned out to be a, a pretty memorable flight path that we got to see that ball take. Yeah, amazing because Bellinger had been so good in the outfield. If there was a chance to make a leap against the wall, you'd think he's, he's going to have a pretty good chance to get a glove on it. And if, if usually he gets his glove there, he's going to catch it. So I was with you. I thought, you know, at worst he catches it. If not, it's off the wall. But then, you know, a second later, the, the, the ball just kept carrying and, and the angle of the way he looked at the ball, you knew that it was going to go out. And uh, what a moment. Uh, uh, what a deflation of Dodger Stadium and the excitement. You could hear a pin drop, but really what you heard were all the Nationals players leap over the railing of the dugout onto the field and celebrating. That was, that was the noise you heard at Dodger Stadium. Otherwise, it was 56,000 dead silent and many already leaving their seats and heading up the aisleways out of the ballpark. Next question is from Val, and she would like to ask both of you, can you talk about a favorite game or moment from the regular season? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I mean, there are plenty to choose from, and, and I think it's hard to surpass uh, an historic ninth inning comeback when you're down 10-4 to four and, and score a touchdown in the bottom of the ninth inning. That's the obvious one. Uh, early in the season, my favorite comeback game was the, the game in San Diego. When they hit the four straight home runs, they were down two to one going to the eighth inning. And it just happened in the span of something like seven or eight pitches that they hit four home runs in a row off a really good pitcher, our old buddy Craig Stammen. And at that point, the Nationals were in the, the clawback mode of trying to get back even to, to 500. But kind of the, you know, when you look back with the benefit of hindsight, seeing how they celebrated in the dugout and, and the reaction, that was kind of the really the, the genesis of the, the dugout dance party and a lot of the celebrations, you can kind of trace it back to, to that moment was when it really first burst uh, kind of onto our, into our consciousness. This, this was going on down there with, with Strasburg's 
you know, exuberant emotion that he normally doesn't show at any time. That was really the first time that, that he emoted like that in the dugout when they hit the, home, the second home run to give him the lead. And he knew he had a chance to get a win. Uh, and so that, that comeback to me was, was really a special moment in the season. Yeah, that was, that was big at that point of the year. And, of course, you mentioned the game against the Mets. Seven runs, seven hits in the bottom of the ninth inning. The Mets took Seth Lugo out of the game, who was probably in there to pitch the eighth and ninth. Uh, but they broke the game open, and they went with other people, but eventually had to go to Edwin Diaz. And, of course, that was a situation where Kurt Suzuki hits that three-run home run, and the Nationals win the game 11-10. to 10. And, of course, I... I looked at you in the middle of the call and said, if you walked out of this ballpark in the top of the ninth where well, the Mets scored five runs and you just, uh, we've been working long enough that you knew what I was going to say and it just came out perfectly in unison. I thought uh, you were just, I, th- I was ready. I was ready to go. <laughs> you blew it. See, we flubbed it. We flubbed it now. We did it. We did it right that time. I, you threw me off there. I was ready to do it. Oh, okay. Let's you do it. Back on me. Let's do it. Let's go. All right. You blew it. it. I don't know how that went out over the internet. No, we we were off sync. We did it right when it counted. That's all that matters. That's true. I got a message today from uh, a half-season plan holder, David Clevin, who's on the call. And actually, he did send this question in, but I knew he was going to send it in because he asked me about it today. Um, His daughter, Maisie, is a huge Nationals fan. And uh, David was at the game, and he was one of the people who walked out in the top of the ninth inning and heard the end of the game in his car. And so to this day, his daughter, Maisie, every chance she gets, she keeps reminding him, dad, you blew it. (laughs) So I just wanted to give a little shout out to David and to Maisie, who's a great nationals fan. And we appreciate you. He might not be the only one on this call who blew it. (laughs) Probably true. Perfect timing that the next question is from David Clevin. So David here asked, what did each of you enjoy calling more? Juan Soto's double in the wild card game? Howie's grand slam in the NLDS? Or Huddy's final strike in game seven of the World Series? It's like asking to pick your favorite kid. Yep. Yep. The Soto hit uh, with the crowd behind it at Nationals Park is amazing. Uh, They wouldn't have won Anything after that without that base hit and, of course, the overrun at right field for three runs to score on the play. And then Hudson comes in to close it out, as we talked about, would close out each series except for the series with the Dodgers. But, uh, you know, for me, that's almost uh, – it is hard to pick. Is that a tie? Uh, you don't get to any further without Soto's hit. But I don't know that anything could ever top calling a strikeout to end the World Series for your team. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we divvy up the play-by-play. So uh, the Kendrick Grand Slam for me, and I, I put it 1A, and, and the Kendrick home run off the foul pole in Game 7, 1B. And, and maybe the Kendrick Slam higher than that just because at that point, it, it was the decisive blow. I mean, it, when, when Kendrick hit the foul pole, it was now a 3-2 game in the seventh inning. There was still a lot of baseball to play. You pretty much had the idea when Kendrick hit that ball and the, and the, the fans flooded the exits that the Nationals were going to get over that hump. And for the first time, advance past the division series so that one had had so much meaning and and for a guy like Howie to be the one to do it considering what he's been through you know he's been a a tremendous big leaguer for a long career and you know missing the 18 season majority of it coming back uh only because probably he had the two-year contract I mean he's he's admitted that if he had not been on the two-year deal maybe if his contract had expired after 18 he might have you know taken it to the house and never gotten a world series ring and uh that was special for for what he's meant uh, to the organization, 
And now obviously he's back on, a, on another contract to potentially uh, try to do it again with this year and, and hopefully a year beyond that. So uh, obviously history changed with when that injury happened in 18 for him to come back and, and be a huge part of the 19 team was, was tremendously important. Even with a bit of a late start, because in spring training of 19, he strained a hamstring that limited him and had him on the injured list to start the season. And really, Dave, if you think about the, uh, the injuries to others in that first few months of the season and the long injury for Ryan Zimmerman coming back for the plantar fasciitis, Kendrick probably played more than by design. And, of course, they didn't need him to play the outfield with a healthy Adam Eaton and Soto established and left after all of the injuries of the year before. And, and uh, the Nationals having Robles and to play center field as the starter. So uh, certainly Kendrick became a luxury, but played a lot at first base because of injuries to Ryan Zimmerman. And Matt Adams also missed time on the injured list. So Kendrick probably got more playing time than, than he would have imagined, even playing 10 games at third base when Rendon was out early in the year. So uh, better than, than the plan might have been, the way it worked out for him. And, of course, uh, in the World Series, we talk, we've talked about this. The benefit of the DH probably helped the Nationals because it allowed them to utilize their bench and get that player like Howie Kendrick, the, the at-bats as a regular in the lineup, instead of having to leave someone out as they did in the games in the National League Park where uh, you, you had a choice to make between Kendrick as Jubal Cabrera and Ryan Zimmerman. How about one other, you know, just a little footnote to Kendrick getting hurt in 18. That was the injury that brought Juan Soto up. If Kendrick doesn't get hurt, so a, a talent that immense is not going to stay down forever, but that opened the door wide for Soto to emerge when he did. And Kendrick and became such a big part of it, and along with Cabrera coming on, unfortunately it really reduced the, the playing time of, of Brian Dozier down the stretch. Uh, still hit 20 home runs, was a big contributor, and still give him a lot of credit for being a really emotional uh, leader as well with Gerardo Parra when he wasn't playing. Uh, you know, he didn't let that – uh, affect his attitude. It didn't hurt the club in any way. It was probably a big help. And he was the star of the Zoom call, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> came, in, came in hot there without the shirt on and was, was in, uh, in mid-season mode with the dancing. We'll miss him. Next question is for both of you as well from Anna. She wants to know, which stadium do you enjoy broadcasting from the most outside of Nats Park? Why? Is it the food, the atmosphere, the fans? Well, Dave and I'll agree on this in the National League. It's it, it'll be Wrigley Field because of the history, the view from the booth. It is the worst booth for space. Uh, uh, we are crammed together with no room to work. It's very old and antiquated. Uh, but the smell of the ballpark, the grease burning off the grills when you show up, especially uh, on a Sunday morning before a day game. Um, the whole the neighborhood thing with Wrigleyville. I mean, the only thing close to it really is Fenway Park in Boston. When you go there, it's a similar smell and and the, and the rich history of the two oldest ballparks in the major leagues. Uh, of the modern ballparks, uh, we don't get to go there very often, but Seattle is tremendous. Philadelphia, uh, while they're an arch rival in many ways, probably have, they have the best ice cream for any press box in any sport on any planet and maybe some of the best press box food. Uh, I still like Dodger Stadium, uh, again, for the history and great vantage point and sight lines to do a game and, and a great atmosphere. And, and any time you're playing in New York, even the new Yankee Stadium gives you a great atmosphere, even though I think I like the, the old one better. Our best views are, are Pittsburgh and San Francisco as far as what we see outside the ballpark uh, with, with that sort of view. But uh, Wrigley Field, great place to, uh, to, to be. 
not a great place to work because of how crammed in you are, but uh, always enjoyable to be there for a three-game series. Wouldn't want to do 81 games there, but three is perfect. The only thing I'd say, it's best when you go there in the summer. Chicago in the summer is a great place to visit. The one year we opened the season at Wrigley Field, that was brutal. The temperature, the, it was in the 30s. It uh, felt like dead of winter doing games there. Uh, you don't want to be there to open the season at the end and, of and March. You want, you want to be there on a weekend because you're going to get a Friday day game and a Saturday day game, and you're going to get some nice dinners Friday night and Saturday night. And, and you'll have no meal money left. Right. That's a great eating city. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Next question is from Kevin Fahey, uh, and this is for Charlie. How did you feel the D.C. crowd for the 2019 postseason compared with earlier postseasons? I think it was right there, as good as any. Uh, you know, we've had some very loud crowds. I think that you know, when we see the highlights, especially uh, the video that was made by the Nationals where you saw all the fans' videos that they shot with their phones during the game and the popcorn and the soda and the beer flying up in the air after the – the Soto hit in the bottom of the eighth inning. Uh, the atmosphere was as good as any. Uh, it's still hard to argue whether there was anything louder than when Jason Worth hit the home run, walk-off home run to win game four of the uh, division series against the Cardinals in 2012. Uh, I would have loved for the Nationals to have won the World Series at home to really sense that. But uh, we could tell how loud the crowd was when you know Zim hit the three-run homer in game four against the Dodgers that uh, gave them an insurmountable lead and forced a game five and how loud it was when the Nationals uh, wrapped up the four-game sweep of the Cardinals to win their first ever National League Championship Series. He's under it waiting and he makes the catch! He makes the catch! Bang! Zoom down the fireworks! A National League Championship winning Curly I mean, I, I think we've got to give credit to the, to the folks on the call with us because, you know, you hear, you know, we, we listen to, uh, to our flagship station and other talk radio. And I, I kind of heard this in the past. Oh, oh, the D.C. sports fan, they're, they're expecting something to go wrong. I mean, we, we've seen what's happened in previous deciding games. And, oh, as soon as something kind of goes negative, there's, a, there's, a, there's doubt and there's, you know, there's angst in the crowd and all this stuff. I mean, when Scherzer gave up the home run in the first inning of the wild card game and then a home run in the second inning, the crowd stayed in it. They didn't, they didn't go, you know, go hide and, and get out of the game. I mean, it was still loud, even though the Nationals trailed that entire game. And uh, I still go back to, to the ovation they gave Joe Ross when he came out. I mean, that, that was the ultimate gut punch to when you have Scherzer set to go against Garrett Cole in game five and a couple hours before the game, you find out Scherzer's not pitching. Well, the crowd gave Joe Ross an incredible ovation. So, I mean, the crowd was, was right there and I think dispelled everything that, you know, people had said about the quote-unquote D.C. sports fan. Well, that wasn't the, the Nats fan that I saw uh, in the postseason. So, uh, I, I mean, I put 2019 on, on top of the heap as far as the other postseasons for that reason. They stayed in whether things were going well or not. Yeah, when Joe Ross uh, started that game, a man got on base in the first inning and got that double play to get out of the inning. The, the crowd level as he walked to the dugout, uh, at the end of the top of the first inning was as loud as anything we heard the whole postseason. So uh, I, I think the crowd was a big boost. The players talked about what a big boost it was for them in the postseason, and uh, they were really looking forward to hearing that kind of crowd again when they get to raise that banner at Nationals Park. The next question is from Eric. After sweeping the Cardinals, did you guys think that the Nationals were going to win against the Astros? Huh. You know, it's funny. You talk about sweeping. The, it's almost like that gets – 
brushed aside. I mean, we, we talk all about the Soto hit and the Dodgers, what a great series that was. And uh, the, the, the great world series nationals had, I mean, that was a complete uh, just clinic of great baseball. The nationals played in that series against a team that you know, was the original postseason nemesis that gave the nationals the first taste of heartache in 2012. And that was a pitching clinic. I mean, I, I look back and I, I think about how amazingly well Sanchez pitched in that game one, and then Max followed it up, and, and both guys nearly threw no hitters. And, yeah, I mean, when they won that series, I'm, I'm thinking that they're going to go to Houston and they're going to find a way to, to win that series. I mean, I know the, the odds – I couldn't believe the odds were that they were the, the biggest underdog in a World Series since 2007. Uh, I mean, that, that's not the team that I was watching, and a team with Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin and, uh, you know, in the lineup, Soto and Rendon and Turner and Eaton up and all down the list, I'm thinking – you know, Houston's a really good team. I get that. And if you want to say Houston should be the favorite, that's fine. But to say the Nationals were this incredible underdog story, I didn't buy that at all. We, I mean, we watched that team from, from day one to, to the end of the season. That was an outstanding baseball team. Had a slow start, but obviously uh, proved their mettle at the end. And over the years when the Nationals would be in the postseason as division winners, Dave, and they'd have to wait from the end of the season Sunday to play until Friday in the division series or Thursday, as the case may be. And, you know, we thought the layoff hurt a team at that point in getting ready. But this was different. Uh, You know, when the Nationals got to the point of winning the National League Championship and sweeping the Cardinals in four games, I mean, the the division series was grueling. Uh, The Nationals didn't use their entire bullpen, and they really leaned heavily you know, using Scherzer in relief and Strasburg in relief in the wild card game and Scherzer in the division series and Corbin used in relief. And everyone has said, wow, they won so early. Now they're going to have six days off before the World Series. This is going to be a nightmare. They'll be stale. But that's not the way you and I saw it, especially for the pitching staff and, you know, for older players like Zim and Kendrick and even Cabrera. I, I thought all of it was going to be help. Suzuki was banged up. So, you know, the, the time would help him a little bit. Uh, I think that it worked complete opposite, that the Nationals had a chance to really rest some people and then really, really, really prepare for the Astros. And they, they had a few extra signs. Just leave it at that. Yep. Next question uh, for both of you from Bobby Bennett. Can you speak to the impact of Gerardo Parra on the season and the dugout? It was amazing uh, from, from the time he got there, gets to play initially first base before he ever played the outfield because the Nationals were so banged up. They needed a left-handed hitter. He hit that grand slam in Los Angeles. Uh, he was hitting under 200 with the Giants. Sometimes changing a change of scenery helps. He was a lift on the field, Dave, almost before he was a lift off the field. Well, I remember when he joined the team in L.A., I was around the batting cage when the Dodgers were hitting and, and was talking to to Dave Roberts, their manager. And, uh, you know, he said, oh, you guys got para. I said, well, yeah, you saw him. What, what do you think? He said, he's going to be really good for your club. And that night he hit the grand slam in the eighth <laughs> inning to win the game in his first hit in a Nationals uniform. And, and obviously he proved it on the field. His impact in the clubhouse was immense. And he, he brought a, a confidence and a swagger. I remember we were, uh, we were in Miami. I want to say it was probably in June. The Nationals had, had started digging or were digging out, out from 500. And I was talking to him before batting practice one day, and he said, this team's going to the playoffs. I guarantee it. And I remember he did a post-game interview mm-hmm. at Nationals Park, and he said the same thing. But that was a couple of weeks later. He, yep. he had said the same thing. He, he had been thinking the same thing. As soon as he joined this club, he felt that this was a team that, uh, that, that had, the, had what it takes to, to get to the playoffs, just needed to get right. 
and they did. And obviously, once the once the bat the uh, the, the walk up song came into effect, uh, just things started happening. When they started playing the Baby Shark, he'd get a big hit. The crowd would go crazy. The, the defense would make an error, and it just seemed like it was it was a rallying cry whenever they they play the Baby Shark when he'd come up. And then, of course, he and Anibal Sanchez, when they were in Detroit and found those glasses on a table that were free outside of Comerica Park, and they each just took a pair going into the park and started wearing them in the dugout, just added to the whole phenomenon of the two of them. And then eventually the, the dancing in the dugout and the hugging with Steven Strasburg. I mean, it just, you just looked for it day after day, especially when Stras pitched. But, you know, in, in terms of Para, this is a player that you and I in the booth had talked about for years because we saw him come up. We saw he was an, a gold glove defender and a guy who always seemed to have big hits or make a huge play in the outfield, whether he was starting or coming off the bench. And I always felt like, boy, this would be a great guy to get to, to have on your team for the bench. And then he signed, he signed, he signed a deal that was more like starters money and he moved around. He was traded a few times and, you know, it didn't look like he'd ever be a national. And then all of a sudden there he was. Well, you're letting folks into our world. I mean, when we get off the air and we're on the road and we go and have a beverage after the game, what do we do? Well, we manage the team and we general manage the team. And it's, it's kind of like the, the Seinfeld episode. Well, we can get bonds and Griffey and it won't even cost that much. I mean, if, the Nationals had a $500 million payroll and could trade for anybody. We, we build a great team, and that's what we do. But we, we have said for years, I'd love to have Arardo Parra on our team because it always seemed like they needed that, that quality reserve outfielder, bench guy, left-handed hitter, and they, they finally got him. So uh, that's like the one move is our, in our fake GM world that, that really paid off. Now, how many times has it come up to the trade deadline in recent years where Riz would go get a reliever he'd go get help for the bullpen he'd make a trade and I remember uh this past year in a hotel we were in there doing just what you were saying and then Riz walked in and said hey what are you guys up to I said we're we're playing you know we're just playing general manager waiting to see what happens the Braves had already are were about to make some moves they made several moves for their bullpen and uh you know Riz said well we like this guy we like that we got a lot of talks going on he goes but don't worry we'll get somebody <laughs> He always does. That's how he put it. He goes, don't worry, we'll get somebody. And he did. Next question is from Bruno for both of you. Could you talk about how special it was to see Ryan Zimmerman finally reach this moment? Amazing. Uh, I, I felt for him the best with all of the injuries uh, that he's had in recent years. I mean, the best thing that happened, that had happened for him uh, before this, Dave, was a few years ago, his resurgence in a healthy year where he, he get you know where where people were saying well maybe he's he's finished or close to being finished and he has that year where he makes the All Star game and puts up his his best year ever for home runs and next to next to best in RBIs and you know I was feeling even you know I just never felt like even with the injuries people a lot of people would say well let's move on you know get somebody else I just felt if you get him into a big situation and he's healthy that he's going to deliver. And he certainly did that in the postseason for the Nationals with some key hits, that first home run, that first run of the World Series with his first home run, the big home run against the Dodgers, coming up in that big pinch-hitting spot against Josh Hader, even though it's you know maybe one of his shortest hits of his career, but he got the bat on the ball. That was huge. So I for, for him to go through what he's gone through with the injuries and, of course, the senior member of the club coming up in September of 05 after being drafted in June of that year, you couldn't feel better better for for anybody than you could for him 
I mean, you, you've seen his whole career, and I've seen his whole career, minus those 20 games at the end of 05. And I still remember, and we still, you know, Zim's got a great sense of humor, and we still, we, you know, occasionally he allows us to dig at him a little bit. Before his rookie season in 06, in spring training that year, when, when he was basically anointed the everyday third baseman, then GM Jim Bowden said, quote, any offense he gives us will be a bonus. And Zim hated that line, and he still hates that line. And so every season we'd see him in spring training and say, hey, you know, he's, he's putting up 30 home runs. Hey, Zim, any offense you can give us would be a bonus. And now, now he's at the stage where we can say it again and, and we mean it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've watched him grow from, uh, from a young pup into a, into a man, and I think he's now angling for our jobs, don't you think? I mean, he's like America's host. I mean, he's hosting these Zoom calls. He's interviewing Dr. Fauci. He's got quite a future with a microphone in front of him, I think. And he's, he's always been kind of deadpan and, and, and very, very mellow in front of the microphone. But I think you're seeing that, that deep down, he, that's, his, that's his calling now. Yeah, I think he, you know, I don't think it was something he thought about a few years ago because he's so he mild-mannered when he would give interviews for radio and television, kind of understated. Uh, but, you know, I think he's become a little more showing uh, his thoughts and opinions in, uh, in the last couple of years. And, uh, yeah, I, I sent him a note after the thing with Dr. Fauci. I just said, second career stuff. Building his demo reel right now. You know, uh, he's got the look for it. Uh, I think whenever he wants to do it, uh, he can do that, whatever it is that in, in whatever form he wants it to be. Because certainly he could analyze a play, he could analyze a game, whether it's, you know, a game broadcast or in the studio or what, whatever form it, it takes for him uh, in his next career. Uh, certainly beloved, a world champion in, in the Washington, D.C. Uh, area. I think it'll be whatever he wants to be. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's really been entertaining and, you know, in, in a great way, too, because he's used – his celebrity to help raise money too for those in need during this COVID-19 crisis. Next question is from Mike Lindsay for both of you. Uh, there were so many players on the 2019 team that were heroes, Strasburg, Max, Rendon, Kendrick, Soto, the list could go on. Who would each of you think was the unsung hero on the team? Hmm. Unsung hero. I'd say Daniel Hudson because uh, Dave, the way you talked about him earlier, what would people have expected getting him at the trade deadline? Uh, he's pitching in Toronto for a team that wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't in a closer's role necessarily there. The, he had a couple of saves, and I think he had you know five or six holds for them. But he, he certainly wasn't the guy at the back of a bullpen. And relief pitching still was something relatively new to him and only necessitated because – he was trying to come back from that second Tommy John surgery. Like you said, a guy, you know, who blew out again immediately after coming back would have ended most people's careers, but he persevered. I don't think uh, Nationals fans maybe knew what to expect from him. So for him to deliver, especially after Doolittle went down to give Doolittle the time to recover and then contribute the way he did in the postseason, for me, he's the unsung hero. And, and on the position player side, I've got to go with Adam Eaton because when you, when you focus as, as the other team on Rendon and Soto and you're worried about Turner getting on base and stealing, well, who's in the middle of all that? Who's, who's in the middle? Who's, who's putting the ball in play after Turner's on base? Who's taking a couple of pitches to let Turner steal? Who's getting a big hit to get on base in front of Rendon and Soto? When you look at what Eaton did in particular in the World Series, I mean, he, he's, his fingerprints are all over their big rallies 
in those games. And he's just – he's the kind of player that when he's, when he's on your side, you love him. If he's on the other side, he's a pain in the neck. And he was a pain in the neck for all his – all the opposing teams in the postseason. It, something changed for him. He, it was – you know, when he got to the middle of the year, the second half of the season – he looked more like the Adam Eaton that the Nationals traded for. And like that, that first, first month, month. the first yep. month before he got hurt, he was amazing before he blew out in, in 2017. Yep. And, you know, he talked about it, the injury uh, to the knee and the high ankle sprain. Uh, people don't talk much about high ankle sprains. Some people never fully recover uh, and are the same after those. And he had both, you know, completely tore up the knee and had reconstructive surgery and then had the high ankle sprain. And then, you know, the next year, had some uh, torn uh, tendon flap or whatever it was that was still part of the high ankle sprain. That uh, was hard for them to really find. Eventually, he had that uh, minor surgery to snip that that loose fragment out of there uh, and relieved a lot of the, uh, the the inflammation and and pain and discomfort that he was having. But he basically said he had to learn to run and almost think about how to charge a ball because it, it took a long time for him to be comfortable in his gait and do all those things without pain and discomfort and, you know, pain after games and recuperation that was involved. It was a, it was a long process for him to get back to where it was no longer something you thought about on the field. And I think that was evident in the second half of the year and very evident in the postseason. Next question is from Michael Goddard. Uh, for both of you, what was your favorite part of the championship parade and can you tell us a little bit about your experience that day? The favorite part for me was, was turning the corner onto Constitution. It was, I kind of compare it to, you know, if you're, if you're in a roller coaster and you're going up and up and up and you can't see the other side and then you crest the top and you go down and it's just full speed and, you know, you get that feeling in your stomach. It's like the anticipation of getting there, you kind of knew what it was going to be, but you didn't know what it was going to be until you turned the corner and just seeing that sea of red on both sides of Constitution you know, is a feeling I've never had before in my life. I mean, it's, uh, it's still, it, it brings goosebumps just to, to think about it. So uh, just that, that particular first view of the enormity of the number of fans that came out to support uh, still sticks with me. You know, we had, a, a, where I was positioned, they had a bus in front of me, a couple of buses. So it kind of blocked your view until you uh, turned the corner and the way they brought us to get ready to get in line for the parade, we really couldn't see the crowd assembled the way it was when we made that turn onto Constitution. And wow, you know, to see people on on the steps of the art museum and all, all of the different buildings along the way was was just amazing. We have time for one more question here, and I think this is uh, very fitting. It's it's not a question, but it's for Charlie. I guess it is a question. Could you please say the swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss for us one more time? I don't know if I could give it the same intensity, but I could try. Hold your ears, guys. Swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. How's that? That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Charlie and Dave. Really appreciate it joining us tonight. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Charlie, as we we think about. Uh, what the folks who've joined us on the call, we want to we want to thank you, uh, number one, for your support. I just, I just know in the situation that I'm in, uh, I, I miss baseball terribly. It's like the last thing I think about before I go to bed and the first thing I think about before I wake up in the morning. And I, I miss being at the ballpark and around the ballpark and, and hearing the cheers of the crowd 
when there's a big moment and, uh, and we'll cherish that when we can get it back. So uh, certainly appreciate uh, you guys hanging in there with us and for the support that you've given us, listening to us over the years, supporting the Nationals, some of you way back to, to 2005 when you were jumping up and down, making the stands move at RFK through the lean years. In the early years at Nationals Park, when they were when the Nationals were 31st out of 30 teams, seemingly, and now to the top of the mountain in uh, 2019, and just uh, cherishing that moment when we'll finally get to see that banner unfurled and, and go chase another championship, hopefully many more to come. It's a great organization to be associated with. Yeah, it's truly amazing experience last year in a season where, as we all know, at 19 and 31, maybe you didn't see that happening. So the, the second half, tremendous run, and uh, the way the postseason played out couldn't have been any more exciting. And, and again, we talked about the parade, and we were all looking forward to the opening of the season and the Nationals coming off the road trip and raising that banner at Nationals Park and the players getting their World Series rings. We know it's going to happen at some point, and we appreciate all of you who support us, who support the Nationals uh, down through the years, as Dave said. We've known some season plan holders to when uh, back to 2005. Their kids have grown up. All our kids have become almost adults now, in my case. Yours almost, Dave. Uh, so it's amazing to think that all this time has gone by and finally, uh, you folks were rewarded with a world championship and now, uh, hopefully soon you'll be, uh, rewarded with a chance to get back to the ballpark to celebrate. So we celebrate you guys. Thanks for being such loyal nationals fans. And we hope you enjoyed this with us, uh, tonight, cause this is the closest thing for us to doing what we love to do. This is almost like Dave, as I've said before, the longest rain delay we've ever had to go through. Yeah, an unscheduled season of silence. But we we've 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 taken the cone of silence off, and we we get a chance to broadcast. It was right around getting you know, our normal game time. We get on our rhythm of the season, the seven oh five start. This was kind of like a a seven oh five game tonight. So you fo- some of you folks may have had a chance, some not. If uh, the other the other thing that that Dave and I and I have been doing are Curly W live from the booth podcasts. If you log on to nationals.com, Curly W Live, you'll find those. And uh, we talk about the games of the postseason with the highlights thrown in, and we'll have more podcasts to come. We also answer fan questions there. So, you know, keep following the Nationals on the social media channels. Uh, There's something new and fresh every day from the amazing social media production team, and uh, hopefully uh, good news will be on the way soon. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Curly W Live from the Booth, again presented by Geico. Follow us at nationals.com slash Curly W Live, and we'll talk to you on the next Curly W Live from the Booth.